Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Christmas, you've got to have a beautiful centerpiece on the dining room table. And how about not only a big Christmas tree, but a little one too. This year, the term I'll be home for Christmas has special meaning for Marlene Bryanton of Charlottetown. She's planning to serve her son a turkey dinner at the dining room table. Last year, his spot was empty, and worse, Marlene didn't know where he was. Oh, it's just tremendous to think that he'll be home. Last fall, Marlene's 39-year-old son left home on PEI. He then ended up in Toronto, where he lived for months on the streets. Marlene's son has a severe mental illness, and like many people with his disease, he has what is called anosognosia. This is when a person lacks insight into their condition. In other words, they don't know that they're actually sick. This condition presents a complicated situation where a person's right to treatment often clashes with a person's right to refuse that treatment. And though thousands of Canadians with anosognosia are homeless on our streets, Marlene embarked on an unusual and very public crusade to get her son home. She joins us now from her home in Charlottetown. Marlene, good morning. Good morning, Matt. Can you just tell me a little bit about your son before all of this unfolded? Who was he? Our son was an assistant bank manager, but uh, he was aspiring to be a bank manager. And uh, he was a husband and a father of two adorable children. And he also was, and still is, a very elite uh, marathon runner. Very busy in his own community. Very busy. He was a youth leader at the church and also uh, a deacon. And so what was going on when your son first disappeared? What was happening in his life? Well, actually, we visited Andrew every Sunday afternoon. And we were down on October the 22nd, 2022. And he abruptly told us that he was moving to Halifax and that he was leaving the very next day. So we were heartbroken, but there was absolutely nothing that we could uh, do about that. Did you have a sense that something was up with him at that time, that that he wasn't doing as well as as perhaps you would have hoped? Uh, He had been diagnosed uh, with a serious mental illness six years ago. And he continued to uh, deteriorate over the years. We tried to persuade him to see uh, the doctor and to go back on medication uh, to no avail. And then so what happened? He said he was going to move to Halifax, but then he just kind of disappeared. Someone contacted me and said that they saw him in the uh, Toronto uh, Pearson Airport. And did you, uh, you had no idea that he was headed to Toronto? No idea. Absolutely no idea. What did you do to try to find him? I took to Facebook and I actually joined approximately 100 Facebook community groups and they would send me date, time and location of Andrew and photographs. They were actually perfect strangers and they were trying to give me and my husband peace of mind by providing us this daily information like I would receive easily 50 to 100 posts per day. And the posts would tell you what? 
The post would tell me where he uh, was located. He's at uh, No Frills and uh, there's people that are offering him food or they'd say, I offered him bananas and cereal and he accepted. Or sometimes they would say, I offered juice and uh, Andrew turned me down. And, you know, I have to say that it is the Ontario residents that helped our son uh, survive over the last year. Through those posts, what did you learn about what his life was like on the streets of Toronto? There was one very shocking uh, picture that was sent to us, and it was a photograph of Andrew sleeping on St. Clair Avenue in Toronto. That was the most heartbreaking photo that my husband and I ever saw in our lives. But at the same time, it was part of Andrew's story. Do you mind me asking about what it was like to see that? I can't imagine as a parent. It was shocking. Uh, we couldn't believe that that was actually our son. But at the same time, I think it made me more determined to locate him and to bring him home safely to PEI. In fact, I dubbed myself Mama Bear. Mama Bear. And Mama Bear will never give up. I mentioned this condition, anosognosia, which suggests that somebody who is in the throes of a mental illness often might not know that that they're sick. Is that the case with him, that he didn't know that he was ill? Oh, that's absolutely the case. Uh, that's the one big symptom of his mental illness, that he doesn't understand that he's ill. And furthermore, he doesn't understand that he needs to stay on medication in order to uh, remain well. Tell me a little bit about what you were trying to do to get him treatment. I was doing everything in my power to try and get him treatment. We actually filed uh, six Form 2s, which enables the uh, police to apprehend and uh, take our son to the hospital for a psychiatric assessment. In three of those cases, Andrew was let go within a very short time. You know, it was heartbreaking. In one case, he was let go at 5 o'clock in the evening into uh, an impending heat wave. And on another occasion, he was at a hospital, and they let him go at 2 o'clock in the morning, in the dark, all alone, and, you know, it just broke our hearts to find out that this was the end result. Like, we knew how seriously ill our son was and couldn't understand why the professionals could not understand that. How hard was it for you to be involved in this, again, from, from the other side of the country? You're on PEI, you're still in Charlottetown, and, and he was, was in Toronto. Actually, I would use the word gut-wrenching. Uh, our son was very ill, and we were like a thousand miles away. And I think the uh, big break for us is when perfect strangers in Toronto uh, reached out to us and offered us hospitality to come and stay as long as we need it in order to go to the courthouse and file the form too, and to get Andrew into a hospital and to be able to uh, visit him. And that actually took place, and we're so grateful to that couple for their kindness. Before you did that, and I want to ask you about coming to Toronto, but you mentioned the reports that people were sending about where he was, um, and, and you were kind of compiling mm -hmm. them and posting them online as well, right? 
Absolutely. Uh, I fill two scribblers uh, full of uh, this information. So, you know, I didn't know Toronto that well, but I sure do now because I was posting a daily report so that people would know exactly where Andrew was so that they could potentially help him. I'm just looking at some of the posts that you put up. 8.40 a.m., he was on Bathurst Street at Lennox, walking south. 10.30 a.m. at the Golden Wheat Bakery on College Street at Grace. 11.30 a.m. on College Street West in front of a gas station, went towards Sterling Avenue. Why did you do that? Why did you post that information online publicly? I know it's, uh, I've been questioned about that several times, especially to do with the privacy, uh, human rights thing. But you know, my end goal was to, uh, help our son survive on the streets of uh, Toronto and to safely bring him back to Prince Edward Island. So I thought that trumped any concern about human rights because bringing him home was the most important thing. And uh, so be it if I was criticized for it several times. There are people who said that you should just let him be. Right, including a street nurse who said that. I was totally shocked. And What, you what know, was, the, what was I, the argument that they were making? Oh, the argument was is that Andrew uh, is 39 years old, he's an adult, and he should be allowed to make his own uh, decisions about things. But the problem is, is that the symptom that he has doesn't allow him to properly think things through. So therefore, he could make bad decisions, either putting himself or others uh, in danger. And what happened when he came to Toronto? People uh, that hosted us, they took us all around the streets that Andrew was walking on. And I would say, oh, yes, I recognize that street. I recognize that street. And from there, once we found out where Andrew was, which was in front of a Tim Hortons, we went there and we actually saw Andrew being apprehended by the police and taken to the hospital. And I know that that's a terrible sight. But at the same time, I breathed just a sigh of relief to see the police taking him to hospital where I knew that he would be helped. Let me just go back. These were strangers that were helping you in Toronto? Yes, these were perfect strangers. And I know when I told my daughter, she said, you're doing what? When? You're going to Toronto and you're going to stay with perfect strangers? And I said, yes, we are. Who were were Uh, they? How did they hear about your story? They actually heard through the Facebook post, like there's been thousands of people that have been following Andrew's story. When you saw him after all of those months um, away, you come to Toronto and you see him for the first time. What was that like? The first thing I did was gave him the biggest hug. I didn't think I was going to be able to let go. And uh, he even allowed me to kiss him at that point in time. It was just an experience like it's like a dream come true. And actually, I had prayed many months for this miracle to happen, and it happened. Where is he now? Uh, Andrew's actually in the Hillsborough Hospital in Charlottetown, and he's uh, progressing uh, slowly, but he's been able to have home visits, having nice meals together, and now we're looking forward to uh, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with him. So you mentioned the number of people who had helped you from a distance um, through that Facebook group, tracking his actions, but also eventually putting you up uh, in a place so that you could try to find your son. I want to bring one of those people into our conversation. Her name is Karen Scott Booth. She's a high school art teacher. And her own mentally ill adult son was once homeless as well. Karen's in Kitchener, Ontario. Karen, good morning to you. Good morning. I mean, listening to this story, 
it's heartbreaking thinking of a parent on the other side of the country who's worried about where their child is and what is happening with their child and how they can help their child. You were much closer. Why did you reach out to Marlene? She's a stranger to you and, and offer your help. Well, first of all, I don't do Facebook, so I didn't know any of this was happening. But I uh, belong to a group of people who are working with the uh, provincial government, working, advocating for change in our mental health system. And I'm advocating for change because of our own personal experiences. One of the people that I work with called me and said, can you, can you help this mother? And so I said, I don't know what I can do, but I will give her a call. And so I called Marlene, and we had... I think we talked every week for maybe every other day or every third day. And this was in July and then through August and through September and October. So it was um, a long journey because I've been through the journey. And I thought, you know, it's hard enough when you're standing in the courthouse um, yourself to get a form from a justice of the peace to get your loved one in the hospital. Um, It's impossible to do it from a distance. And I think the Bryantons were experiencing that impossibility. And uh, I just felt that I could help them because I've done it so often. And I am experienced, unfortunately. And we've experienced that revolving door, you know, over and over and over again. Our son uh, went missing um, as well. He was missing in New York State for nine months at one point in his illness. What did you think you could offer her? I thought I could help her sort of navigate the system. So to get a Form 2, uh, then you get them to the hospital, then you get a Form 1, hopefully, which is a 72-hour assessment. These are the, the forms are, are the means by which um, somebody can be held involuntarily, briefly, so that they can have an assessment to figure out whether they can be held for further treatment. The Form 2 is initiated by the family member or the person um, who is close to the patient. That You have to go to the courthouse and stand before a justice and give evidence and get a Form 2, which gives the police an opportunity to take that person to a hospital um, for assessment. And then the Form 1 is done by the doctor. Hopefully the attending emergency room doctor does a Form 1, which keeps the person for 72 hours. You're working with a group of of others, including psychiatrists, to change the legislation in the province of Ontario around involuntary treatment. What has to change, do you think, to better ensure that people get the treatment that they need? Well, I am. In fact, I'm working with a team of amazing people. So psychologists, um, psychiatrists, lawyers, social workers, a police officer, um, and family members like ourselves. So in our Health Care Consent Act, when someone is deemed incapable and they don't have the capacity to determine their own treatment, the consent board can rule that the doctor's findings are valid and the person is needs to be treated. And when family members support that, power of attorney supports that, substitute decision makers, when all of those checks and balances are are satisfied, there is a simple flaw that if the lawyer who is representing the patient, and they are paid for, by the way, by our legal aid mm-hmm. government, um, they all they have to do is appeal that decision of the consent capacity board to the Superior Court of Justice, and the person cannot be treated until that appeal is heard. And that could be 10 months or more. And all you have to do is look at our prisons and our streets, and you can see the results of this flaw in our system. How do you go about ensuring that people get treatment but also respect 
issues of consent and respect their autonomy. They may not, because of the nature of this condition, understand that they're ill, but at the same time, they still have some degree of, of autonomy, do they not? Of course they do. But uh, as far as we are concerned, civil rights um, is honored when the person is well. And so if you allow someone who has this serious illness, and our son also stu- suffers from anisognosia when he is manic, um, and is deemed incapable and cannot make decisions, uh, we are questioning how a patient who is deemed incapable can even instruct a lawyer to appeal that Mm. ruling of the Consent and Capacity Board. We believe that people who are this ill have a civil right to be well. And in our case, our son has said to us, when he has recovered, what took you so long? Mm. Marlene, what was it like for you thrust into this situation to have the support of someone like Karen to, as she said, walk you through the system? Karen became a very good friend. In fact, Karen drove from Kitchener uh, down to the Humber River Hospital in Toronto, and she was with us uh, throughout the process of getting Andrew uh, admitted to the hospital. And uh, she was there as our personal advocate. And she's a busy lady, but she did that for us. Can I ask you about something that we discussed briefly earlier, which is the public nature of what you're doing? Your story has been written about in the Globe and Mail. Here we are on CBC Radio talking about it. This is this is your son and, and one of the most difficult parts of, of your son's life. Um, have you talked to him at all about how public you have been with his story? I haven't done that yet, but uh, I have done uh, something else. I have asked uh, people in... PEI and Ontario to send Andrew Christmas cards or letters or notes. Uh, And I have a feeling that the people, especially in Ontario, are telling Andrew that his mother did everything that she could to save his life. And so at the end of the day, I think Andrew has that message, but we just have not communicated that uh, together yet. You're hoping to have him home for Christmas? Uh, It's the biggest thing in the world to have him coming through that front door, and we can't wait to go to the hospital and pick him up. Karen, what would you say to Marlene about about what happens now, where she goes from here, based on your own experience. Yeah, I'd like to say that our son has recovered uh, from his three-and-a-half-year episode, um, in a severe manic episode, and we were afraid that he wouldn't come back even with treatment because it was it's an illness of the brain, right? And it's, it's very serious when it continues without treatment. It needs medical treatment. But I'm, I'm happy to say our son has recovered well, and we see him. He lives on our property now. Uh, he is starting his life over. And so there is hope. And that's what I've told Marlene, that, you know, there is hope that he will recover. It takes a long time. And, and I think many of us, uh, mothers, fathers, and loved ones, uh, really know that pain. No one, no family member should have to go through what we are going through. The system needs to work better, and we need to have more support. Karen, I'm glad to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And Marlene, thank you for telling us your story, and all of our best for you and your family over this Christmas and holiday season. Thank you very much. Marlene Bryanton lives in Charlottetown. Karen Scott Booth is in Kitchener, Ontario. I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. 
Luckily, podcast playlists can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. Specific legislation regarding involuntary psychiatric treatment varies province to province. As Karen explained, in Ontario, the Health Care Consent Act prohibits involuntary treatment until all appeals are exhausted, what she called a flaw in the system. The exceptions are in case of emergency or if a physician gets a court order to give treatment. The Ontario Ministry of Health sent us a statement saying that it takes suggestions to change that act very seriously and will continue to analyze the information presented. Bethany Yeiser heads the American Cures Foundation. It advocates for people with schizophrenia and other severe mental illnesses. And like many who have the disease, she too had anosognosia. Bethany joins us from Cincinnati. Bethany, good morning. Hi, well, I'm well, very happy to be here. Glad to have you here. What goes through your mind when you hear those two women talk talk about, about what Marlene did and, and the, the lengths to which she traveled to try to find uh, care for her son? It's very hard to get treatment for a severe mental illness. There's a very high bar. Uh, This is the reason why I ended up homeless for a period of four years. I spent close to three years hiding in libraries and lounges at my former university campus. I slipped through the cracks. Um, I spent 13 months living outside in a churchyard. If I had Alzheimer's disease, I would have been given medication. I would have had food. I would have had shelter. I would have had clothing. All my needs would have been provided if I had had Alzheimer's disease because that's what we do for people in that situation. One of the other issues might be that condition that that we were speaking about earlier, that anosognosia, where you don't know that you're sick as well. So I personally, when I was picked up by police and taken for a observation, I was having visual hallucinations. I was hearing voices. I was totally delusional, thinking I was going to make a worldwide impact. I thought a helicopter was going to come and pick me up from the churchyard where I was living and take me to my new life. Uh, And I was very paranoid of my mom and dad. I thought they would stop me from making a worldwide impact, which was entirely ridiculous. I did not have a clue. You know, when I was taken by police to the psychiatric ward, I thought they will let me out immediately because nothing is wrong with me. So, yes, we see anosognosia, this pathological lack of insight. If somebody is living through through a, a mental health crisis and they don't understand that they themselves are are ill. Is it possible to convince that patient to get treatment rather than force it, as we heard earlier? The the, the concern is that you're forcing somebody into uh, into treatment and removing the autonomy that they would have as as an individual. Is it possible to to, to square that? When I was taken to my first hospital, I, as I mentioned, had not a clue that anything was wrong with me. I thought I was perfectly mentally healthy. So I stayed there for a day, a few days, and then they said, look, you can take a pill or you can take a shot. You don't have any other options. So, yeah, I mean, I I was pretty upset. I wanted autonomy. But the fact of the matter was I was entirely unaware 
of how badly I needed the medication and that that medication would give me a brand new life. So what happened was I I was on the medication, but I had very, very bad side effects. The medication helped really a lot, but I couldn't see it. I had no idea. So I discontinued my meds. I became very psychotic. I ended up hospitalized again. And during that second hospitalization, I the doctor successfully convinced me to always take my antipsychotic. He he said, you know, do you remember going to school, going to college and getting high grades, playing violin at a high level? He said, you might be able to have that back, but you must always stay on this medication. And after I'd been on it for maybe two, three months, I started thinking, oh my goodness wow, I feel more like myself again. And then a year later, I went back to college, which I had been told would never be possible. And I graduated in molecular biology with a 3.8. Just before I let you go, we're just about out of time, but what advice would you give people who are trying to advocate for their children? Um, but they, they wonder whether they're doing the right thing, they're whether, whether they're being too public or too forceful or, or too interventionist. What advice would you give them? It's really important for people, family members, clinicians to never, ever give up. Doctors need to never, ever lower their expectations. They need to fight for their patients to achieve the highest level of recovery. It is so common for them to just be immediately told they're permanently and totally disabled. It is also common for these parents to be told that this is their loved one's choice. People with schizophrenia cannot just choose to act normal and get over it any more than a patient with Alzheimer's or stroke or Parkinsonism. They are just going to need help. And most of them will have no idea that anything is wrong with them. Bethany, glad to talk to you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bethany Eiser wrote a book about her experience. It's called Mind Estranged, My Journey from Schizophrenia and Homelessness to Recovery. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.